Good day, everyone, and welcome to today's oil market outlook, What Should OPEC Do? At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, you will have the opportunity to ask questions during the question and answer session. You may register to ask a question at any time by pressing star and 1 on your touchtone phone. Please note, this call may be recorded. The information and views conveyed by Energy Intelligence on this call shall not be considered as advice, recommendation, representation, or endorsement, and should not be relied on in connection with any business or investment decision. Any use of such information by any person or organization is at such person's or organization's sole risk. I will be standing by should you need assistance, and it's now my pleasure to turn the conference over to your host for today's call, Jim Washer. Please go ahead. Thank you, hello, and welcome to today's Energy Intelligence Virtual Roundtable. My name is Jim Washer. I'm Executive Editor with Energy Intelligence, and it's my pleasure to be your host for today's discussion, Oil Market Outlook, What Should OPEC Do? OPEC meets next week, of course, and all indications point to an extension of the output deal agreed with some non-OPEC producers at the end of last year. That agreement was supposed to take 1.76 million barrels a day off the market, and compliance, certainly on the OPEC side, has actually been pretty good. But the recovery in prices remains fragile, and markets remain concerned about high stock levels and rising volumes from the U.S. shale patch. Brent has dipped below $50 per barrel again in recent weeks, not a great price for most oil companies, nor for most OPEC budgets. So what should OPEC do next week? To discuss this, I'm joined by three of my esteemed colleagues. In New York, our Chief Energy Economist, Dr. David Knapp. In Moscow, our Deputy Bureau Chief, Nadia Sadkova. And in Dubai, in a change from the Advertise Program, our Dubai Bureau Chief, Oliver Klaus. So David, Nadia and Oliver, welcome and thank you for joining us today. David, let's first of all try and set the scene. We've had getting on for five months of this OPEC non-OPEC output deal. How's the market looking? Is the inventory overhand diminishing? Or simply, are the cuts working? Thank you, Jim, and hello, everybody. Thank you for dialing in. Um, the broad answer is that this is still a soft market, um, that we are seeing um, global surpluses. Uh, they've come down uh, from 1.4 million barrels a day uh, in January to a little under a million, 956 in February, and that got cut in half in March, so it was looking good at 455, but we're back uh, at about that level. Um, oh my, uh, our oil market intelligence publication comes out today, uh, and our, our uh, guess on the April uh, surplus is about 467, so it sort of stalled out. And looking at the inventory overhang, you get a bit of the same picture, that there has been um, a, a net build in inventories over the, uh, over the four months that we have the data for. Um, in fact, it's like 52 million barrels higher for OECD uh, commercial inventories, crude and product, which is what OPEC is using as their metric. Uh, and we're looking for maybe another 40 million or so build this month. So uh, OPEC has a problem to deal with at, uh, uh, at the meeting, that the cuts aren't working. And uh, we'll talk a bit about that. I think Oliver can answer the next question better than, than I can, but um, we think that OPEC does need to do something, and we can talk about the details later. Thank you. 
So, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Jim, I can um, uh, pick it up from here. I think uh, basically uh, we got some indication this week on what the Saudis and the Russians think uh, uh, needs to be done. Uh, we had uh, Khaled al-Fala, of course, the Saudi energy minister, uh, and his Russian counterpart, Alexander Novak, um, give a press conference in Beijing uh, this week. And their message basically was, we need a nine-month extension because uh, um, we, you know, the current agreement between OPEC and non-OPEC producers just isn't doing the job uh, to the extent that it was hoped for. Uh, inventory levels aren't where they were supposed to be by the end of June, and so they want to get back to the five-year average. Uh, and so what they've been saying is no, both Novak and Anfala, uh, they'll be basically trying to get consensus on um, getting everybody on board for um, uh, an extended cut, uh, a nine-month cut instead of a six-month, which would have been a basic rollover. So they're saying we need this additional period to actually um, achieve the original goal. Um, and they'll be, they'll be working um, over the next uh, week or so to um, get everybody's support. So that's May 24th when the JMC, JMMC, the Joint Ministerial Monitoring Committee, is meeting, and then hopefully OPEC have it sign off a day later. Uh, I think, so I think from the Saudi perspective, I think the message is clearly, um, you know, they're serious about cutting, uh, about uh, bringing down inventories uh, uh, to the five-year average. It seems, you know, certainly, uh, um, you know, that's what they're expressing, that the Russians are keen. Uh, within OPEC, it's not entirely clear um, who's backing this or not, or at least whether all of the members are uh, backing the plans. But... Now, there were some indications uh, from the Kuwaitis and the Iraqis. They, you know, they seem to be in favor of uh, um, this extended deal until the end of March. Uh, we've spoken to some uh, of the Iranian sources. They, you know, they, there is some indication that they are going to back it as well. Um, I think in total, we sort of come up with seven countries out of the 13 OPEC uh, um, countries that are that are in favor of extending the deal. Um, so, you know, it certainly seems there, there's consensus building, and um, uh, as it stands, it probably looks more likely than not that this deal is going to be extended until the end of March. Okay, so that's the sort of position within OPEC, that support from non-OPEC is obviously vital to making this work, and the key player, as you say, Russia, signed a joint statement with the Saudi supporting this nine-month extension. So, Nadia, what's Moscow's strategy here? What does Russia stand to gain from continuing to cooperate with OPEC? Yeah, thanks, Jim, and hello, everyone. Um, Russia's support was actually very crucial to the December deal um, to be signed. Uh, and when the talks on extending the deal have started, there were lots of speculations whether Moscow would support the extension or not. And the key decision was, um, as it usually is in Russia, with Russian President Vladimir Putin, who uh, remained tight-lipped on the possibility of the extension over the last two months, probably. But speaking in China for the Belt and Road International Forum, he endorsed the statement by both uh, Saudi Energy Ministry and Russia Energy Minister uh, on, that called for the extension of the December agreement. So for Moscow, the extension is also crucial, um, although, although, as we understand, Moscow initially wanted um, the six-month extension, and it was like, you know, the Saudis offer uh, to prolong the deal for nine months. For Russia, there are two elements uh, of this extension. The first one is economic. 
Moscow uh, has not been entirely satisfied with the current deal, as the state had expected the cut would lead to, eat, uh, to yet higher prices. Moreover, the market rebalancing has not gone the way OPEC and non-OPEC producers have, uh, <clears throat> have expected. So, a Russian energy minister, um, Alexander Novak, said this week that the market would not rebalance until surplus inventories disappear, uh, which is likely to happen well, in the first quarter of 2018. Um, this is like you know, the economic reason that Russia wants um, even more higher prices um, and, stabil- and oil price stability. The other reason is probably the political one. Uh, the weight of Russia has grown significantly um, when the December deal was signed. Uh, lots of experts and politicians um, talked about uh, this Russia's role uh, in signing the current production cut agreement. So Moscow doesn't want to lose this role. Um, and moreover, uh, the December agreement brought Russia closer uh, to the Middle East partners, uh, to Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, and other countries. Uh, and uh, Moscow doesn't want to lose those ties either. That is why this is probably the second reason why Moscow wants to, um, to support this nine-month um, production card extension. Okay. Um, so if I can turn to you again, David. Um, if we do just get an extension, even one for nine months, is that going to be enough? Or does OPEC, as some analysts have suggested, need to cut even deeper? Um, exactly. That uh, it probably is not going to be enough. And in fact, there are uh, one way to uh, put it is there are, there are four uh, basic areas here. The first is lengthening, which we've talked about. Uh, the second is uh, is deepening, i.e., you're going to make deeper cuts with the current crew. Um, and, but there's also the issue of tightening. Uh, which has happened in the past when there are these kind of discussions within OPEC, uh, they'll focus on the cheaters, quote unquote. Uh, that's not really an issue for OPEC since Saudi Arabia has assumed the role of uh, shock absorber here and balancer. So if they get more people to behave, uh, that will take a bit of the burden off Saudi Arabia, but it doesn't change the market impacts very much. Where that matters is certainly with Russia uh, and the other um, the other ten non-OPEC participants. In particular, Kazakhstan is uh, the re- is the source of a lot of the uh, overproduction and the reason why we're seeing compliance rates in the 30 percent, 30 to 40 percent area for non-OPEC. Now, but then the question becomes, as Nadia was talking, the difficulties with having Russia become uh, a Saudi-like uh, organizer of the, um, uh, of the cuts for the non-OPEC guys. There's one other thing that uh, needs to be mentioned, and besides lengthening, tightening, and deepening, there's broadening of uh, the cuts, uh, that is, adding new participants. Um, there will be two uh, observers at the OPEC meeting. There are often observers, but these are under, I think, particular uh, tension. It's Egypt and Turkmenistan. Uh, and if they could be rolled into the cut, at least the cosmetics of it make it look more effective. Uh, and if you're going to have 13 non-OPEC, why not bring in Nigeria and, uh, and Libya? Uh, they've become a bit more relevant to the market uh, in increasing here recently the amount of light uh, sweet crude in the Atlantic Basin, which is uh, 
um, the area which I think needs to come under control first and why the OECD inventories are being used as the metric. Uh, whether or not they join, uh, they have a four new members and it's an OPEC 13 and non-OPEC 13 might give a little bit of spice to, uh, to the meeting, um, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, is it enough? Uh, that depends very much on the progress of U.S. Uh, shale response to it, which has been one of the, costs, uh, the causes of the, uh, uh, the lack of, of uh, performance so far. And by my numbers, just looking at the activity going on in the Permian Basin and some of the other shale areas, that we could see as much as a million barrels a day, uh, December on December, uh, in growth in crude oil. Uh, and on top of that, there's another half a million of natural gas liquids in the U.S. that are giving uh, problems to the balances. Um, and so is it enough? Uh, I don't think so. I think they're going to have to make some progress on all four of these, tightening the non-OPEC, uh, deepening the cuts, and broadening the participation. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, David. That was very helpful. Um, you mentioned there um, Iran, Libya, so all of them. Let's, let's talk about OPEC cohesion, how well it's working as a group. Um, compliance, as we said, has been fairly good, but you do have, as David mentioned, the threat of rising U.S. shale outputs. You've also had a rebound in volumes from Libya recently. That's outside the, uh, the OPEC um, output agreement. All of this creates pressure. So is, is OPEC going to be able to maintain discipline and unity over the next nine months? What do you think their main worries are as a group at the moment? Um, okay, well, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one, but let's talk about OPEC compliance. I guess, well, first of all, compliance has definitely been uh, good. Uh, the IEA put it at around 96% for the first four months of the year uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, of course, and uh, David just uh, uh, mentioned it, I mean, this co the collective compliance has largely been down to uh, the Saudis overcutting. So that has compensated for uh, the laggards. Um, there were a few of them. Um, uh, but uh, I guess it seems that the kingdom is committed, so that's obviously going to be one of the uh, critical contributors uh, going forward. Uh, will OPEC as a group maintain discipline? Um, I guess. So I think two things might help. Well, first of all, the, um, if oil prices remain at the lower end of the sort of 45 to 45, uh, 55 barrel dollar range uh, that we've seen, then um, this is probably going to uh, discourage leakage somewhat. Uh, I think there's definitely um, financial incentive for uh, countries to comply. Uh, if you look at the sort of first quarter revenue figures versus first quarter 2016, um, even on lower production levels, uh, 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 revenue has been up um, according to our own calculations. So this incentive is there. Um, uh, then what might also help, uh, I guess, in terms of sustained adherence is, you know, what's the alternative? Um, return to the uh, Saudi-led market forces strategy. Uh, that's probably less appealing. Um, you know, this was essentially responsible for the stock buildup between late 2014 and end 2016. So I don't think uh, that countries will necessarily see this as a viable alternative. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's an intensely com competitive market. Uh, we all know that. Um, so we have Libya and Nigeria uh, coming back in a pretty big way at the moment. Um, can they sustain it? Uh, remains to be seen. But um, if they do come back and 
manage to maintain production levels or increase. Um, others may just say, well, we don't want to relinquish market share and uh, begin to leak. Uh, and again, David alluded to it as well. So, um, you know, this is basically the one thing to watch, uh, um, Libya and Nigeria, and whether OPEC as a group is going to try to uh, curb uh, their, their output. Um, you know, I think that's one of the things that could cause some issues during, during the meetings, um, because it seems pretty unlikely that we um, willing to join, uh, certainly the Libyans. Um, you know, with Iran, you know, there could be a request for Iran to cut back. I, you know, I, I think it's pretty unlikely the Iranians would agree to it. Um, so there's, there's a few question marks. Um, uh, but I think overall, uh, as a group, I think the, um, the incentive to, um, to maintain pretty high compliance, level, uh, compliance levels at this point is certainly there. Okay, yeah, Jim, could I make a footnote to uh, um, to what what Oliver just said? That sure, uh, obviously Saudi's um, willingness to be the shock absorber when it has to do with Libya and Nigeria is very different than being the shock absorber for Iran uh, or Iraq, for that matter. That uh, uh, it's difficult um, for the Saudis to back out for that. The other thing that really needs to be mentioned in all this is the reason for the price increases um, uh, coming back has very much to do with the financial side of the market, that uh, as the shale producers have been hedging, uh, there have been counterparties that are willing to pick that up. And there's a very interesting uh, correlation, an important correlation between the amount of barrels that have been built in, on the paper side and the amount of barrels that have been built uh, globally on the, uh, the physical side and inventories. So one of the things to also look out for is the shape of the forward price curve, what that does to the appetite both for financial and physical stock holding and how that might play out in disrupting the market obviously uh, would cause a lot more volatility. And remember, uh, it's not just price levels that OPEC is looking and non-OPEC are looking for. Uh, they also want a less volatile oil price at the end of the day here. So, Okay, thanks, David. Um, I think at this point we should check and see if we have any questions from our audience. Thank you. At this time, if you would like to ask a question, please press star and 1 on your touchtone phone. You may withdraw your question at any time by pressing the pound key. Once again, to ask a question, press star and 1 on your touchtone phone, and we can pause to allow any questions to queue. Okay. So, um, while we're waiting, um, you mentioned this earlier, David, the great challenge for OPEC at the moment is how it manages to coexist with U.S. shale, which has been rebounding this year. So, are we learning anything about the oil price that gets shale players drilling again? Is it lower than people thought? And how big a recovery in output should we expect this year? Um, absolutely, it's, it is lower. Uh, technology is helping. Um, also, on the side of that, something that isn't paid enough attention to for some of the areas, like the Eagleford, um, is there was this high grading that went on uh, where uh, when prices went down, the people went to the, be the, the better resources. And remember, these are costs per barrel. So if you can get more barrels, your costs are going to go down. So focusing on the, uh, the big 
opportunities and ignoring the marginal stuff uh, can only go on for so far. Uh, and I think with Eagleford, we were seeing the impact of that very strongly. And now uh, it's starting to come back just in the last couple of months. So we're seeing some growth in some of the non, what's called the Carnes Trough area uh, that is helping to build uh, Eagleford back. Um, so yes, it, uh, it is on the way up. Uh, and you don't forget when you learn how to do things better. The other thing that needs to be pointed out, and it's a longer term thing, but you know, the U.S. isn't the only place in the world with shale. Uh, it is almost the only place in the world where you have individual property rights, so that's why it happened here first. But there are, are very large shale deposits uh, uh, being looked at and being developed, in fact, in Argentina. But China is another area where once they get through their conventional gas resources, which they're still hooking up, uh, that they may be uh, a shale player of some note. And the biggest uh, uh, shale deposits are in Russia, uh, in the Bazinov area. Um, the technology ban uh, from the U.S. has been hurting that development. But when you look longer term, that yes, shale is around for a long time. And I take the U.S. off of it. I said, you know, can OPEC coexist with shale? In general, shale has changed the rules. Shale caused the uh, decline in oil prices, and shale is going to be part of the oil world that needs to be accounted for from here on out. Um, they can coexist, but the thing to remember is that uh, the U.S. shale producers or global shale producers cannot do a production targeting agreement. Uh, in most places, you go to jail for that. That's called restraint of trade and antitrust and various other stuff. So it would have to happen by accident. So the idea that U.S. shale is the literal swing producer doesn't work because it's, it's a, an involuntary uh, or uh, it's a compliance which doesn't have uh, any official standing. So uh, coexisting but not as co-equals. Okay. Thank you, David. Nadia, let's look at Russia again here. I'm obviously very important um, in any assessment of supply-demand balances over the rest of the year. What are we expecting to see from Russian output the rest of 2017? Do Russia's producers actually support this output cut? Or who's suffering the most from it? Okay. So Russia has agreed to cut its production by 300 bells today from October levels. And Russian Energy Minister Alexander Novak said that this 300 bells per day cut was actually reached in, a in end April. Um, and this was agreed from the very beginning that Russia would steadily cut its production. So if the extension is finally signed in Vienna and if the terms remain in place, Novak said that Russia would keep the 300 barrels per day reduction uh, over the last over the next uh, nine months. Um, so, um, which means that Russia's overall uh, 2017 production uh, would remain mostly flat uh, on last year, um, while before uh, the deal it was expected that it should grow by about like you know one or two percent. Um, as for Russian producers, uh, they publicly supported the nine-month extension, but actually they didn't have a choice um, after President Vladimir Putin uh, publicly said that he supports um, the extension. So uh, what we've heard already um, are statements from Russia's two largest crude oil producers, state-controlled Rosneft uh, and privately held Lukoil. So heads of uh, the two, these two oil companies, uh, they supported the idea. 
uh, of the extension, and they definitely said that uh, they would, uh, they, those companies, Rosneft and Lukoil, they will have to amend their plans. But actually, um, they are waiting for the Vienna, for the outcome of the Vienna meeting uh, before making like you know um, any decisions. So uh, Rosneft also said that uh, the current uh, production cut deal had a minimal uh, effect on the company's activities and that uh, the company actually won from higher oil prices. Uh, this um, position is also shared by some of the other Russian producers. Uh, but definitely uh, Rosnia should uh, carry the biggest like, you know, burden of the, uh, of the production cut. Uh, and from the 300 barrels per day uh, cut, it is uh, Rosnia accounts for more than a third. Uh, then comes Luke Oil, um, and then there are two uh, other Russian, Russian's biggest companies, Surgut Neftigaz and Gazprom Neft. For Surgut Neftigaz, which is Russia's uh, third largest crude oil producer, the company might find it less difficult to comply with the planned cut because it was expecting its output, its output to go down this year anyway. Uh, so there won't be like, you know, much trouble for this company. But the uh, obvious victim of the planned um, extension is Gazprom Neft, which is Russia's fourth largest crude oil producer in, and is actually the fastest growing uh, Russian company. So uh, Gazprom Neft has so far remained like, you know, tight-lipped uh, on the possible extension because it is uh, the company that would, that would suffer the most. Uh, the company was growing by about like, you know, 10% year on year, and now it should have to uh, amend its growth plans uh, and uh, probably <clears throat> to grow uh, to grow, but not that fast as it as uh, it initially expected. Um, among among other oil producers, regional producer Tatneft uh, also had um, ambitious growth plans, which it would have to revise um, if the um, extension is finally signed. But there is one more uh, thing that should be noticed uh, when we are talking about Russian producers. Um, uh, well, unofficially, uh, Russian producers said that it's not only prices that would impact the activity and not only the cut itself that should impact the activity, but it's the ruble-dollar exchange rate, which is really very important. So uh, if, um, if we are talking about the current deal, uh, this helps to make, uh, to bring euros, uh, Russian crude um, euros uh, oil prices by six, up by 62% in the first quarter compared to, compared to the same period of 2007, uh, 2016. Uh, the quarter and quarter increase was just 8%, while uh, the Russian ruble has grown by almost 7% against the US dollar quarter and quarter. And this actually offset the effect of higher prices for Russian producer because they're getting revenues in dollars. So if the ruble is getting stronger, uh, they're getting revenues in, in dollars, but they're spending in rubles. And if the ruble is getting stronger, this actually offsets uh, the, in, the effect of uh, higher prices. So this is the issue that also has to be tackled by the Russian authorities, uh, even if the production uh, cut ex uh, is extended for, for the next nine months. Okay, that's an interesting read. I think maybe some people haven't, um, haven't thought about. Um, let's check again uh, if we have any questions coming in from the audience. 
We have no questions at this time, but remember, audience, you can ask a question by pressing star and one on your touchtone phone, and you can remove yourself from the queue by pressing the pound key. Actually, we will take a question here. We have a couple of queuing up. We have uh, Colin Smith from Panmuir Gordon. Please go ahead. Your line is open. Yeah, thanks for taking my question. Um, just coming back to U.S. shale, I noticed in the last uh, monthly drilling report that the month-on-month well production in the Permian actually has been falling for a month or two. And I think that's the first time we've seen, if you like, well efficiencies decline in what is now the key um, shale uh, area for the U.S. And I just wondered how you thought that might play out through the rest of the year and whether we might see an attenuation in the growth of U.S. shale from the levels that we've seen in the year to date. Okay, thanks, Colin. Hello, Colin, indeed. Thanks for that question. Hi uh, there. So, David, that might be one for you. Prospects for the Permian Basin over the rest of the year in light of uh, recent trends. Um, I don't share your concerns, Colin. How are you doing? Um, Hi there. I, I think it's just a one-month uh, deal. Um, you know, part of it is also that uh, you're starting to see a little tightness in some of the, the labor markets for fracking crews. Uh, there's plenty of equipment, but getting the people back if they've left, uh, not an issue in Eagleford, but certainly an issue in the Bakken and, and sort of in between in the Permian. I'm kind of more interested in looking at um, how active the land markets are. I'm encouraged by some of the, uh, the changes in ownership that have gone on with uh, uh, the deal that Noble did um, with Clayton Williams and the deal that uh, that Exxon uh, did with uh, with the Bass Brothers, that we're we're seeing things. Although those were reasonably strong hands, we're seeing a lot of the shale assets in the Permian are now moving into stronger hands with deeper pockets. So the financial constraints that had cropped up a big time in 2015 and 2016 um, are are really easing quite a bit. Um, so I'm I'm a, a real bull. I think that we're going to see uh, a half a million barrels a day more uh, out of Texas in general by the end of the year, uh, and they I think it has legs. I think it continues. Um, the sort of head huge car salesman for all this, although he's a great oil man, is Scott Sheffield, and we had him at our oil money conference last year, and he tells a very compelling case about a very large number of very good prospects that are in his now focus area um, in one of the trends in the Permian. Um, my concern is that land costs are starting to take off. So uh, rent capture is what this whole thing is always about. Uh, as you can tell, I'm an economist. Um, and the oil service company gets a cut at it, but they don't get it until uh, the landholder gets his take. And they're, they're taking a uh, maybe more than adequate, some of the producer friends of mine say, uh, cut of, uh, of what's going on. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay a lot of attention to one-month uh, changes in uh, uh, either the well productivity, which goes back to the point I made about uh, uh, highlighting and going to the sweet spot, high-grading in the sweet spots, uh, or uh, just activity that, uh, that can slow down. So if Thank it was you. Canada, I'd say it's the mud season. You know, they can't get the trucks out to the lacks and stuff like that so that they'll lose some production in uh, in April and May. Um, but anyway, thank you very much for the question, Colin, and hope you're doing well. Thank you. Okay, thanks, David. Uh, do we have any uh, questions from our audience? Yes, we do. We have our next question from Andy Callitz from Shell. Andy, please go ahead. Your line's open. 
Thank you. The, uh, the earlier quoted number of 96% compliance by OPEC always confuses me. Uh, intuitively, it sounds like a high number, but on the other hand, the oil market needs very small imbalances or very small non-compliances to be out of balance. So how does one assess whether 96 is actually a high or a good number, and in fact, how is it measured? Okay, Andy, thank you for that question. That sounds like another one for David, uh, making sense of compliance statistics, and I think there's a good point there, because there are some different methodologies, particularly with the complexity of the current deal. Uh, David, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, absolutely, and as I mentioned earlier on the call that uh, we're putting out uh, oil market intelligence today, and our number is 104, if you care about the difference between 104 and 96. Uh, but again, uh, as was pointed out by uh, Oliver and by me, that uh, it's really about what the Saudis have been doing, uh, and they have been compensating. So uh, the other way to look at compliance, of course, is looking at the number of uh, producers that are in compliance and the ones that aren't. Uh, and that's a less compelling case for OPEC, and it's awful for non-OPEC. I mean, uh, I think there's six or seven of the 11 that are, in fact, over uh, their initial base. Uh, they're also very small cuts, so uh, 20, 30,000 barrels a day type thing, so they really don't matter. It's Russia that matters for that and their willingness to, uh, uh, to step up beyond what Nadia mentioned is their very strong commitment that Novak has talked about to honoring the, uh, the cut that they promised, the 300,000 barrel a day cut, uh, but you know their willingness to go beyond that to compensate uh, for Kazakhstan, a neighbor and a former, uh, former uh, uh, republic, um, is, uh, is, I think, more limited. That's, that's another set of issues. The, the whole problem with this, of course, uh, Andrew, uh, is that uh, we don't really know the base numbers for, uh, um, for the non-OPEC part. We know that it's October, uh, uh, except for Angola is, uh, is September for, uh, for the OPEC cut. So we have a good uh, look at that. Uh, but then they use secondary sources, and there's no reason to believe that the secondary sources are, are accurate uh, versus the direct communication. So you have that disagreement. Uh, you have Venezuelan numbers, which are almost unknowable at this point, uh, that we all have to make things up. Uh, actually, energy intelligence has uh, been a secondary source for, uh, for uh, ever since I've been there. And uh, when I was at the IEA before that, we were a secondary source. So, um, you know, the secondary sources do the best they can, and they're, they're, um, usually they used to be a month ahead, although it's now kind of lined up with the OPEC numbers. But the whole uh, arithmetic of compliance uh, is is very frustrating, and uh, that's an excellent question. Uh, what do we really know when we know that? Um, we use our own numbers for both the base and for uh, the current production levels, but those numbers, in fact, I, I accept like five of the OPEC direct communications uh, as being uh, true statements of what's going on from, uh, from Saudi Arabia in particular, but also Kuwait and the UAE and Qatar. Um, I don't know what to do about Iran, so we fiddle around with exports and domestic production. Uh, Iraq, we do our own loading, loading schedules as we do for Nigeria and Angola. Um, Libya is just a shot in the dark. You take two or three numbers that you can maybe get on a daily production level and then try to draw a line between them, uh, and they don't report. Neither does Gabon to, uh, to the Secretariat. So um, 
yes, uh, don't waste a whole lot of time uh, getting concerned about compliance levels. Uh, I even had to be dragged kicking and screaming to put them into uh, OMI. <laughs> okay, thanks, David. I hope that helps uh, answer your question, Andy. Um, do we, we probably have time for one more question from the audience if we indeed have one. We do. We have one more question from uh, Paul Bradley from Chevron. Paul, your line's open. Uh, thank you. Good morning. Um, I appreciate you guys sharing your views on, on uh, the likelihood of them extending. <clears throat> the question I have is uh, over the first half of the year, a number of these countries uh, have sort of pulled maintenance forward from the second half of the year. Uh, UAE, Kuwait, and I believe Iran have done that. And you also had Saudi Arabia with a very low uh, direct crude burn demand in country. Uh, these are not likely to extend into the second half of the year. Um, how, how, how do you think they'll, they'll deal with that? Will they, will they keep their production down? Will Saudi Arabia cut their exports to accommodate their domestic burn? I mean, how are they going to work this all in? Okay, thanks, Paul. That's an interesting question. So this is looking at whether maintenance and, um, in the case of Saudi Arabia, direct crude burning has had an impact in kind of helping, uh, I think if I understand it correctly, keep them in line with this agreement in the first half of the year, whether that becomes more challenging uh, if, they, if there's less maintenance, for example, in the second half. Um, that's something I imagine David might have something to say about, but also Oliver, obviously, with uh, you know being in the region itself. Either one of you like to go first on that? Yeah, Oliver, why don't you go first? Yeah, so I thought it's an excellent point, uh, uh, and you know we've looked at this actually this weekend for our uh, upcoming publications, um, uh, and it is true. I mean, we had the UAE, we had uh, Iraq among those um, moving maintenance forward uh, into the first and second quarter, so that clearly helped. Um, uh, I think uh, you know it's it's we, we cannot say for sure that they that they will maintain those lower production levels. Um, and uh, it, it could be a case for Saudi Arabia to, um, or it could be a reason for Saudi Arabia to maintain the sort of deeper uh, than um, targeted uh, compliance levels. Um, but at this point, I mean, it, we, you know, we we certainly have no clear indications whether they will um, maintain it at these lower levels on, uh, or not. But there is in, in the UAE, for example. Uh, some of the maintenance uh, is still ongoing. How much longer? Um, this is probably going to extend into June, um, uh, uh, but there is nothing lined up for the third quarter. So that's definitely something to take into consideration um, uh, in terms of clients. I mean, uh, compliance, David, uh, in terms of uh, what you had to add. Yeah, I, I, one one uh, note that really the compliant the uh, uh, UAE um, maintenance is not being moved forward. It was moved backwards. Uh, they really didn't do anything Sorry, yes, in the fourth yes. quarter. Um, but now the question is, will they be doing maintenance in the fourth quarter this year or not? If they do, it'll probably be fairly light. And I was uh, frankly stunned by their reported number of two nine eight eight for. Uh, for April, because I had figured that maintenance was going to start. Then I didn't hear about it, so I moved the number up, and then I sort of push it out into uh, uh, into May and June. Uh, but we'll see about that. The other thing that's sort of in play, although.
Yeah, I and mean, Oliver would know better than I. I haven't heard anything recently, but uh, the neutral zone will clearly be compensated for by uh, uh, cuts by uh, uh, half each by uh, Kuwait and the UAE. And uh, from the very beginning that I have been putting that in, uh, whenever it comes back, the Saudis will eat that. The first quarter direct burn numbers are always very low for Saudi Arabia, and then they start to grow a bit uh, in the second they really peaked uh, in July, August, and a little bit of residual in September. Um, and, you know, that's the point at which uh, they could kind of move. Uh, if somebody says, well, gee, you're producing too much, they said, yeah, but our exports haven't gone up. Uh, the cosmetics of that are probably, John Van Schaik and I were talking about that last night, uh, they probably would not uh, try to hide behind that. They might just uh, go ahead and... Um, meet the domestic demand and not say anything uh, about it, uh, you know, with, within their, uh, their production, um, certainly below their, uh, their 10, uh, 10 million and 58,000 barrels a day um, target. Um, but also the idea about continuing to compensate that if it's Libya and Nigeria, uh, yes, if it's Iraq and Iran, uh, probably not. Okay, Oliver and uh, David, thank you very much. I hope that was helpful, Paul, in answering uh, your question. It's also um, a pleasure to have two of uh, two questions uh, from Shell and Chevron, two of our our most uh, respected readers. So thank you. <laughs> okay, uh, I think that brings us pretty much to the close for today. I should just thank uh, everyone who's listened in and those who asked questions, and of course David, uh, Nadia, and Oliver for joining us as well today. Um, our next virtual roundtable will take place next month, so please check our website, www.energyintel.com, for details of the topic and participants, which will be posted shortly. So until then, thank you, goodbye, and see you in June.